0: Father, we thank you for the beauty of the white blanket that we occasionally experience here in Reading. And we're thankful, Lord, for the calm and the quiet that sometimes comes associated with that. And we recognize that in the midst of the bedlam in which we live and the ugliness that seems to be around us so much of the time, there is a sovereign God of of calmness, of beauty, of excellence. And, Lord, we know that one day we will live in the realm which you have created, which is free from sin and all of the uh, damage that has been produced and will be a world of perfection, a world in which beauty and uh, wonderful things beyond our imagination are our reality in a constant condition. We look forward to that. But, Father, in the meantime, help us to be people who who recognize the beauty of your holiness, who exalt your name, not only by our mouths and the words we speak, but by the lives we live. Lord, it's so important, it seems, in this day, when often we find leaders of the church falling to the left and to the right, Uh, it's so important that we learn to make the word a reality uh, in our daily walks so that we are not uh, faithful only in word, but in deed. Father, help us. May the Spirit of God infill us. May the Spirit of God teach us, even during this hour. And we'll praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll open to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37, I would like to read the first four verses to begin with this morning. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned, in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when seventeen years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he he made him a varicolored tunic. Last time I mentioned the fact that as we begin the 37th chapter of Genesis, we will be looking into the final uh, epic, if you will, of the patriarchs of Israel. Uh, We'll be looking into the life of Joseph. Uh, We have looked at Abraham, we have looked at Isaac, we have looked at Jacob, and of course Jacob is still not off the scene yet, but the focus now goes to, to this man, Joseph. And with exception of a couple of chapters, one which focuses on Judah and then a chapter later on, uh, the attention is, is given almost exclusively to Joseph and the affairs of his life. And many find the story of Joseph to be one of the most fascinating parts of the book of Genesis, and certainly that's because he is kind of a hero figure, I think, in most of our minds. We, we think of him as a young man who, who did that which was right in the eyes of his God. And God honored him and used him in, in a great way. And certainly, he was the man that was God's choice to save two nations. He would be the human savior of the nation of Israel and also, ultimately, of the nation of Egypt. Because of these facts, I think it's really interesting... For us to note that there is no record of God appearing to Joseph. Now, that's very interesting to me as we think about God encountered Abraham. Abraham uh, experienced a theophany. Isaac experienced a theophany. Uh, uh, Jacob experienced a theophany and, and multiples for many of these. Uh, Jacob wrestled all night with the angel of the Lord. Uh, He saw the vision of the stairway to heaven. and, And yet there's no record that Joseph ever heard God speak to him verbally or saw a vision of God himself. There's no statement made that God passed the Abrahamic covenant on to Joseph. And, of course, the reason for that is he didn't pass the Abrahamic covenant on to Joseph. It's interesting to note that in spite of the, uh, uh, of the uh, position of this young man and of his commitment to God and his obedience, he is not in the direct line to Messiah. It's interesting to me that, it, that Messiah does not come through Jacob's loved and favorite wife Rachel. Her sons Joseph and Benjamin do play a significant role in the history of Israel. But the lineage of Messiah does not come through either of those sons. The lineage of Messiah comes through, of all people, the unloved wife. That is Leah. It is through her that the lineage of Messiah comes. And it's, I think, a commentary on the character of God that God often uses those which, in the world's vision, are unloved, Uh, not beautiful in the world's definition of beauty, Uh, strange maybe in some way, outcast in some way, God uses those people to accomplish his plan. And so it would be through Leah. I mean, you would say, well, if it comes through Leah, then the lineage of Messiah should come through Reuben because he's the firstborn, right? Well, as you know, it doesn't come through Reuben. It comes through Judah, who is the fourthborn to Leah. And if you, as soon as we finish the 37th chapter, we're going to read the 38th chapter and study that. And the 38th chapter focuses on Judah. And as you read through that chapter, you say, this guy is kind of an unsavory character. You know? Messiah is supposed to come through this guy? Well, we'll see a little glimpse of, of something of his character here in the 37th chapter more so later on, will there actually be a demonstration of some Christ-like characters, characteristics in this man, Judah, uh, in, a, in a later situation in the book of Genesis. So Christ would come through the fourth-born to the unloved wife, Leah. If we were planning it, we probably wouldn't plan it that way. That's one of the unique things about Scripture. Uh, You study the Scripture, and you think, humans simply wouldn't plan things to happen this way. (laughs) I think it's one of the demonstrations of the fact that this book is is God-inspired and not human-inspired. I've read enough novels and enough history books, as you have certainly, hopefully, to know that there's a kind of a way man thinks. And this isn't it. (laughs) It just isn't this way. Now, Joseph would be an important man. He would father two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And uh, these two sons would themselves become patriarchs. They would be the only uh, clan heads or tribal heads who were not directly the sons of Jacob himself. They were his grandsons. Uh, and together they would comprise the largest tribe. Ephraim and Manasseh together would be the most numerous uh, people, So Joseph's tribe would be the most numerous tribe uh, individually, uh, that is collectively. Individually, they would later be superseded by Judah in terms of the most uh, individuals connected with that particular tribe. But so important will the tribe of Ephraim become, for example, that later on during the uh, period of the kings... And the divided kingdom, the northern kingdom, will often be referred to in Scripture as Ephraim, just Ephraim. And uh, there there is uh, was a forest on the top of the hills uh, in what today we would call Samaria, which was called the forest of Ephraim. And so this name will, will show up importantly in the history of Israel. But what is very important uh, different about it, I suppose, is that in the long run, the tribe of Ephraim and the tribe of Manasseh, along with eight of the other tribes, would be destroyed by the invading Assyrians in the 8th century. And and the tribes would no longer function as, as a center of power there in, in the land. Now, there would be a few representatives of these tribes that would filter on down south, and be in the kingdom of Judah, and thus would, uh, would survive. Now, until Benjamin was born, a year or two before this chapter was, records, uh, Joseph was the youngest of the eleven sons. On top of that, he was the only son of his favorite, of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. So he stood in an honored position, in a unique position, these two factors, being the youngest of the eleven and then being the only son of Rachel, actually put Joseph in a dangerous position. He had ten older, jealous brothers. And, and this keeps showing up as you read through this thirty-seventh chapter of uh, Genesis. This being true, it was really pretty important that Joseph watch his step. That he be very, very careful. That he try to show his brothers proper respect and honor. That he act as the 11th son. But unfortunately for Joseph, that wisdom eluded him in his early years, as we see in this passage and beyond. Now, in the second verse that we read this morning, we discover that Joseph was 17 when he was out pasturing the flocks with his brothers. Now, again, we have to try to picture the situation. Jacob is now in his inheritance. He had acquired massive flocks from his father-in-law Laban, that is, the seed flocks which grew into massive flocks under Jacob's care. Uh, there had been uh, many, many years for those flocks to multiply into the thousands of animals. And now he has also become responsible for his father Isaac's flocks, which were also very large flocks. So we're talking about a situation there in Hebron, where the hillsides were literally covered with thousands and thousands and thousands of sheep and goats and certainly other animals too, that were under the uh, control and under the direction of Jacob's sons. So the sons were pretty busy. They had to be out there caring for these animals. And there were also dozens and dozens of servants that were out there alongside the brothers helping to carry out the chores of uh, leading the flocks. So what we read in the second verse is not a unique experience. This is not saying, Now Joseph for the first time went out in the field to be with his brothers caring for the flocks. Certainly not. He had been out caring for the flocks ever since he was old enough to do those things. And you know how little boys are. As soon as they're old enough to be able to walk and get around, they want to copy their older brothers or their father, and so they get a little staff and go out there and try to lead the sheep around. And so certainly uh, he had been doing this for many, many years. What is important about this verse... Is not the unique, uh, there being a unique uh, statement here of him going out and watching the flocks. But what is important is that it introduces the problem that results in the scenario described in the remaining portion of the chapter. What we discover is that Joseph was a snitch, he is out there keeping the flock with four of his half brothers. Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. Now, try to put yourself also into the sandals of these four brothers. Two of them are full brothers and two of them are full brothers. The two sets are half-brothers to each other. And Joseph is a half-brother to all four of them. This is one of the complications when you have multiple wives. These guys were all a little older than Joseph, And they were the most likely, of all of the brothers, they were the most likely to feel hatred for Joseph. And the reason for this was, first of all, that their mothers were not true wives of of Jacob. They were concubines. They were maids that had been given to Jacob for the express purpose of producing children on behalf of their mistresses, the true wives of Jacob, Leah and Rachel. And so they were not wise because Jacob loved them or Jacob desired to have them and honor them as his wives. They were simply instruments for the production of children for Leah and Rachel. So first of all, their mothers were second-class citizens in the family. At least the brothers probably saw it that way. And as we look at the life uh, of the expression of Jacob along here, and see how Jacob treats Joseph. I don't think it's really very far-fetched to feel that if Jacob is able to, to just blatantly treat Joseph with much greater honor than the brothers, that he probably knew very much how to show favoritism to one wife and non-favoritism to another, so that they had this sense of not being equal. So here you have four boys who are the sons of what could be considered second-class wives. And here is the son of the loved wife. So you can imagine how they would feel in his presence. Much inferior, at least in the eyes of their father. And that was very, very important to them. I don't think these boys treated Joseph particularly kindly. But they did him no harm because of respect and fear for their father. I think if they had had a chance, they'd have knocked him around all they could. So, this being true, it's very interesting to look at the actions of Joseph here. Joseph actually invites trouble for himself by tattling on his brothers. Running back to daddy and telling what the brothers are saying or doing. says, Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now, we might say, well, they were doing something bad and they should have been tattled on. Not necessarily, because the Hebrew behind the word bad report here uh, literally means wicked slander. Now, what is slander? Slander is saying something about someone else for the purpose of defaming them. And so it seems that the thrust here was that Joseph was coming back and tattling uh, on his brothers to his father so that they would look bad in the sight of their father and he would look good. This seems to be the thrust here of uh, what it's saying. So his, his report was mischievous. And he was slandering his brothers rather than actually coming back and say, look, these boys are doing this, and if they keep doing it, it's gonna really, we're going to lose thousands of sheep, or, or they're going to get hurt, or some other terrible thing will happen. No, he's bringing back the report. And probably what he's reporting on is the fact they're calling him names, and, and treating him as if he weren't really, you know, the best boy out there. Now, there's a tendency to over-glorify Joseph. And I find this in reading the commentaries. Some of the commentaries make it sound like Joseph is absolutely, totally, completely innocent in this whole thing, and that nothing that he, he did was wrong, and it was all, these boys were just bad. Well, that's not the way it comes across to me, particularly when you look behind some of these words and discover and, and think about natural human nature. You know, Joseph was, was not uh, Mr. Perfect. He was a normal young kid. And uh, most of us have been reasonably normal young kids at one time or another. And we know how we think. And certainly he didn't think too differently from that. So how does he get away with it? Well, he gets away with it because he's Jacob's favorite. And Jacob loved him dearly. And in Jacob's mind, he could do no wrong. Although, (laughs) in the next passage, we'll find even Jacob takes exception to uh, something that he reports. This young man had taken away the stigma of his beloved wife's barrenness. There was nothing by which Joseph could have earned greater honor with his father. And, of course, it wasn't his fault. It wasn't an action that he planned on his own. Jacob, in this passage, refers to him as the son of his old age, which is a statement of preference, but it's also a statement which kind of puts Benjamin in the background, doesn't it? Apparently, Benjamin is still not really quite into Jacob's thinking yet. He's there, he's a very little boy, he's without a mother, uh, but but he's not grown to the point of actually taking the place of that youngest son yet in Jacob's thinking completely, even though Jacob did refer to him and name him son of my right hand. Jacob is unwise here too in not uh, trying to hide his favoritism for Joseph. At least cover it up. Not make it quite so obvious as as he did. Uh, We we discover here that what this does is exacerbate the problem. Joseph became the principal object of his brother's hatred, and the father made it worse. The badge of this this, uh, favoritism was the paskuthaneth, or the long-sleeved tunic which was also very probably multicolored or varicolored, as it says there. Uh, the Hebrew word is just uh, nebulous enough that you can't really name it, uh, n- nail it down. Uh, but what we do know about this is that such a, a garment was the symbol of a nobleman. It was the garment wear, worn by the head honcho. And so what Jacob has done is given to his youngest son, that is, second youngest son actually now, of course, but to the oldest son of his favorite wife, the emblem of preeminence. Now, to whom should that emblem of preeminence have gone? Well, it should have gone to Reuben. Reuben was the firstborn. But we already know what happened to Reuben. And his father would ultimately castigate him and and say, you know, it, it couldn't give preeminent position is somebody who's as unstable as water, as he would say in that uh, last uh, passage of prophecy and blessing concerning his, uh, his sons. So what he's doing here is, in effect, elevating the 11th son to preeminence over all the sons. That does not impact the other brothers favorably. They do not look at this as a good thing. Now, Joseph makes it more of a problem. And I, I hope you see this as you read down through the passage, because I sure see it anyway. I think I see it. <laughs> That's what I get from, from the way this is put. Joseph makes it worse because he apparently had an arrogant attitude about the whole thing. <laughs> I've got the emblem of preeminence, and, and you guys better treat me like that. You know. Give me the um, privilege due, my position. Can you really blame the other brothers for the hatred that began to generate within them? Well, certainly not in the flesh. Hopefully, as Christians and believers in the indwelling Holy Spirit, we, we recognize that hatred is not an attribute of God unless it's hatred towards sin and hatred towards the evil one. But, uh, you know, hatred needs to be rooted out of our hearts, no matter what the cause or the justification for it. But looking at it uh, from the point of view of the flesh, you can understand how it developed in the hearts of these young men. Sibling rivalry is always a problem. Well, I shouldn't say is always, but is often a problem. Uh, especially when the siblings are younger. Uh, Hopefully when they get older, they're more mature and they can deal with the situation and get it straightened out. But these are still relatively young men. Now, how significant was their hatred or their feelings against Joseph? Well, the passage tells us that they could not even bring themselves... Where is it here? yeah in the end of fourth verse they they and so they hated him and could not even speak to him on friendly terms now unless you look behind that the, those words there you don't really get the full impact here the word for friendly terms here the literal hebrew word is shalom they could not even say shalom to their youngest brother now, shalom in Hebrew is not like howdy in English, you know, <laughs> or hi, or hello, or, you know, uh, various terms that we use, which are usually uh, meaningless. We say, how, uh, hello, how are you? We certainly don't expect the person to respond and tell you how they really are. We don't really want to hear that. We, we, we expect a fine, and so everybody says fine, even though it's a lie, probably. Uh, but that's what's expected. Shalom is very different. Shalom, in, in a broad sense, means peace. But if you look the word up, you discover it has to do with, with well-being, with security, with uh, you know, just the tenor of your life. And so when you say shalom to someone, you're saying, God bless you, may, may the blessing of God be upon you, may your welfare be good, may all your children have lots of children, or, you know, whatever you want to include in them. It's a very meaningful phrase. And so what we have here is the inability of these brothers uh, to even say a simple shalom because they didn't want the well-being of this young man. They hated him, and so they could not even say, peace be with you, bless their baby brother. The implication is that in front of Jacob, they were grudgingly courteous to Joseph, but behind Jacob's back, it was kind of like jab here, you know, and a dirty word there, and an ugly look, and cut him out of all the, fun things, whatever it was they were doing. I don't know what fun things sheep herders do, but certainly they must have had some kind of games they played. And and so there was a vicious demeanor behind Jacob's back. And this may have been the root of his bad report. The guys are treating me mean. In front of you, they seem to be just fine. But out there in the field, they say very bad things about me. And, and they try to, you know, have me trip over rocks or whatever. Let's read verses 5 through 8. Then Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Please listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and, lo, my sheave rose up and stood erect, And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brother said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. This dream, as little as we have recorded of it here, it's a strange dream, but in, in a way you can see how it would be a satisfying dream. It was not a nightmare, at least not for Joseph. We're not told here that this dream came from God. It doesn't say, and God gave Joseph a dream. But by the fact that the, jo- the dream comes true later on, we can assume that it came from God. Now, if God gave him this dream, why did God give him this dream? Well, certainly God gave him the dream for his own edification. He didn't give him the dream so he could go to his brothers and, and brag about what he was going to be someday and what they were going to have to do. It would seem like a very, very unwise thing to do. I mean, he already knows that these guys aren't treating him too well and, and that they have bad feelings towards him. So it seems like a stupid thing to do to go and tell him a dream like this. You guys are all going to bow down to me. But at the same time, we can understand why, can't we? All the -the behind-the-scenes things are happening to him. So now he gets an opportunity to go to the brothers and get in a jab, really. He says, someday you guys are going to be sorry because you're going to all bow down to me. Now, he had no idea what that meant. (laughs) He had no idea of the context of what would happen. But he believed in this dream. And, you know, these barley sheaves were all, you know, the barley is all cut and bound together and stacked up. And these—and it's really strange to see sheaves walking around and bowing down, I'm sure, but that was what he saw in the, in the dream. And his, his brothers, what, what he did was to add fuel to the fire of their hatred. Huh. They hated him already. Now, this simply stacks more fuel on the, on the burning fire of hatred. And what it does, it le- it, it, what it reveals is his lack of maturity. This kid was, was no uh, you know, great paragon of virtue at some very young age. Yes, he was probably more virtuous than his brothers, but he had his problems. And one of the things that's really encouraging about this is that we can all have hope. Because... We all stand before God really equal. And God doesn't look down at us and say, Boy, you've committed 17 more crime, uh, sins than this person, and so I honor you. We're lower, and, and this person higher. No, God doesn't look at it that way. God loves us all equally. And, and God wants to deal with us uh, where we're at, and, and He doesn't look with favoritism. The Scripture tells us very, very clearly. He doesn't favor one person over another. God loved Dan and Naphtali and Judah and Reuben as much as he loved Joseph. And it's really important, I think, that we recognize that. What he's doing is actually reinforcing his brother's animosity because it was clear to them, they understood that the sheaves bowing down represented what would happen in real life according to the dream. Now, a whole lot more stock was put into dreams in that culture of that day than we put in our culture today. Now one of the reasons that's commonly given today is that they were superstitious. And, and we are scientifically advanced, and we know better. That's why the horoscope is so popular today, because we're so scientific. And uh, that's why, you know, the cults are catching on. And people are becoming, you know, go up here to Mount Shasta and and try to get into the zones of convergence or go out on the beach and say they're God or whatever. It's because we're so mature and advanced, right? (laughs) No. I think really one of the reasons was that these people were more spiritually sensitive than we are in our culture. Missionaries find this to be true often. They go out to a real pagan tribe, where they live in heathen darkness, and yet they find these people have a sensitivity to the spiritual realm, spiritual realm. Now unfortunately, it's the evil spirits that they're sensitive to, but they know that there are unseen forces that are realities and are powerful. In our society, we, we don't even believe in demons. You know, I mean, if we call them a demon, it's, you know, it's some psychological aberration that we can't understand. I uh, hope that's not true for us, but I mean in our society in general. We've become so Greek in our thinking that we, we've pushed aside all of these things. You know, the great Greek thinkers of antiquity, even though if you go back through history and you study the Greek pantheon, you know, you have Zeus and Aphrodite and all these different uh, gods and goddesses uh, back there. The great Greek think <laughs> not green, Greek thinkers, <laughs> what did, to them it was all tongue in cheek. To them it was. You know, just silliness. They didn't really believe that way. They sure, they believed in the great prime cause and and that there is a guiding mind out there that brings about the order of the universe. But to them, the the silly idea of, of Zeus running around and giving birth to gods out of the top of his head and other things like that was just ludicrous to the intelligent, educated Greeks. And that's the way we look at it today, often, in our culture, is that we're educated to the point where we don't believe in these kinds of supernatural experiences. But I think one of the reasons that God spoke to people in dreams, as we find it recorded here in Genesis and other parts of the Old Testament Scripture particularly, but not only the Old Testament, is that we have this. They didn't. We have the complete word of God from Genesis through Revelation. We have what God wants to say to the human race here in its entirety. They didn't have that yet. There was not even one page or word of Scripture written at the time that Joseph had this dream. And so God directly intervened and spoke to people because they had no other way except, of course, the general revelation of of the world. Uh, in which to, to know God. We don't need to have God speak to us in a dream. We don't have to have God shout it out from heaven. I'm not saying he never does today. I'm just saying we don't need it as they needed it, because we have the revelation right here. And if we're studying it, God's guiding us. He's got the tool to guide us if we're studying it. If we're not, that's probably why we're in a fog half the time. Whatever is the case, the brothers did not believe this dream came from God. They were certain it was just another invention by Joseph so that he could lord it over his brothers. He kind of liked this favorite position, and he kind of liked his long sleeved tunic with its multicolors, if that was, was <laughs> characteristic of it. And, uh, you know, I think he carried it rather arrogantly, and they hated him. Because, you see, he's declaring his preeminence. I'm sure he felt very innocent in the whole thing. I'm just telling you what the dream said. But why, you see? Sometimes it's perfectly innocent, would seem perfectly innocent to say something, but you have to think about the motivation for saying it. It may be true, but why are you saying it? Gossip is spread that way. Often, I think Joseph's youthful pride played a big role in his undoing here. Whether simply from immaturity or from blatant arrogance, it's going to be his downfall. God will turn it around and God will make something wonderful from it, but it's going to hurt him. It's going to hurt him very badly. And the pride of self always leads to trouble. Uh, Dr. Grant uh, sent around to the faculty and staff uh, a, a letter, uh, uh, a, a text, of Myron Augsburger's uh, address at the uh, Christian College Coalition. Uh, he's the outgoing president of the Christian College Coalition, and in that address, uh, he quotes uh, something that was on Oprah Winfrey's show, was it? Uh, I think so. Where... Uh, She was interviewing a couple of really old ladies. They were like 102 and 103 or something like that, sisters. And uh, one of the sisters said to Oprah, 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 I know why the world is having so much trouble. Something like that. And she says, oh, well, tell me. And she said, all I've heard in the last 30 minutes on this show is me, me, me. The pride of self. I mean, there's even a magazine I've seen under the bookshelf, I've never opened a thing, called Self. Oh, good. I I put passages, most of these are very familiar to you, but I, I thought it'd be good for us just to remind ourselves here of, again, the role that pride plays in bringing destruction. Because we face it every single day. If there's somebody in this room who, who has no selfish pride at, ever, at any point in his or her life, all day long, week on end, I'd sure like to get to know you and find out how you do it. Because it's characteristic of us as human beings. In Proverbs chapter 11, verse 2, a very short, very powerful statement, When pride comes, then comes dishonor. With the humble is wisdom. The word humble shows up many times in Scripture, and the concept of humility arises time and time again. Why do we have people who are in Christian leadership who are doing an outstanding work take a huge nosedive? Is it because God finally said, well, I don't need him anymore, let him collapse? Or is it because God is weaker than Satan? Absolutely not. Usually it's because pride has opened the door and given... Ground to the enemy. Chapter 16 of Proverbs, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. It is better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. In other words, it's better to be one of a heart of a mother, Teresa, out there bandaging the wounds of poor... uh, homeless and uh, sick Indians in the corner of the world than it is to rub shoulders with the princes and the presidents and kings of this world and be known as their friend. Matthew chapter 20, verse 25. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercised authority over them. It is not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Again, this is not the normal kind of human thinking. Human beings would not write that way if they're writing about what Jesus would have said and they're inventing it out of their heads, they certainly wouldn't say that. Because in our world today, if you want a position of power, the normal fleshly way is to go for it and step on everybody who gets in your way and shove them out of the way and, and do everything you can to get good press coverage and you know, just get right on up there. God helps those who help themselves which is hokum. People sometimes quote it as if it was Scripture. It's really the opposite of what Scripture teaches. God does not teach us that we're just supposed to roll over and lie down like a doormat and expect God to do everything for us. But we're not to shove our way into preeminence and priority. Because God's definition of leadership is servanthood. That the world cannot handle. Because if you're at the top, if you're the CEO, you say this and you say that and you do this and you do that and you get all the glory and they do all the work. But in servanthood, you treat those around you who are working for you as if the scripture says they are better than yourself. And you surely can't put a demeaning uh, characteristic on them if, if you're biblically a leader. And so persons who rise to leadership have, in, in the Christian realm have got to display this Christ-like characteristic, and it's not naturally human. It's got to be put there by the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 9, verse 46, And an argument arose among them as to which of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side. And he said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, this is the one who is great. John the Baptist lived out in the wilderness. John the Baptist had a hair shirt and ate grasshoppers. John the Baptist was... Too many people, almost like a wild man, a voice crying in the wilderness. And yet, Scripture teaches that there was none born among men greater than, than John the Baptist. The world cannot fathom that without the converted mind. But we as God's people have got to fight against being brainwashed by the world and thinking as the world thinks. And we have to recognize that even if we're put in a position of power, let's say in some corporation, that we still must think as a, as a Christian should think in that situation and, and allow God to take care of the situation beyond that. In other words, you might say, but if I don't act like people who in this position are supposed to act, then I won't have any respect and I'll lose my position. Hey, let God take care of that. We need to be obedient to what the Word teaches about what our attitude should be. And often what happens is, we win the respect of those around us, and they work harder for us, rather than trying to cut us in the back because they want our position, or they hate us. Joseph would spend many, many years in the school of humility before he was ready for the exalted position that God had prepared for him. One day, Joseph would become prime minister of one of the most powerful nations on this planet at that time. He was not ready at this moment for that position. God would humble him. God would throw him in prison. God would put him through the school of hard knocks, if you will, until he was to the place where he would recognize what it was to be godlike in the... Biblical sense of the term. And to recognize that it is God who puts us up here in power, and it's not because we have any ability or any skill or any worth. It's because God has so ordained and so chosen. And, of course, this makes Joseph then truly Christ-like in his dealings with his brothers, when he certainly could have, as the world would have done, taken vengeance on them said, now I got you guys, squirm. Well he did, you know, play with them a little bit there. But they deserved that and and it it kind of, (laughs) and and it would waken them, it would heighten their sensitivity to, to what his nature was really like. And they would appreciate him all the more because they would know what he could have done to them. Well. We don't really have time to push along into uh, verses 9 through 11. There's another dream that comes along, and it's kind of like jumping from the frying pan into the fire here, but uh, we'll begin with that dream next week.